Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. No end in sight for Deflategate. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady appeared in court this week for settlement talks with a judge. The league suspended Brady for four games, saying he was aware air was taken out of the footballs to drop their pressure below NFL standards prior to the start of the AFC Championship game in January. The judge reportedly pressed the league on its evidence and said Brady did better in the second half of the game than in the first half when the balls were found to be underinflated. The talks continue next week. The NFL would rather focus on its process of potentially moving a team back to Los Angeles. Owners heard about proposals to take the Rams, Raiders, and Chargers back to their previous home. No decisions yet, but Deflategate is grabbing all the headlines. The league probably thought after the criticism it took for its handling of the Ray Rice punch thrown at his fiancée last year, this year would be all about the game. Not so. The 49ers have a major grass problem. No, we're not talking about marijuana use among players. We're talking about the field at the team's new home. Levi Stadium cost $1.2 billion, but apparently that didn't include enough to get the turf right. The 49ers canceled a public practice recently because of the ongoing turf issues. New sod at Levi Stadium will be installed after this weekend's Taylor Swift concerts and ahead of the preseason home opener against the Dallas Cowboys on August 23. Hopefully, the team in the NFL can avoid any bad blood before the stadium hosts Super Bowl 50 in early February. And the NBA continues to go global. It signed a sponsorship deal with Marriott that makes the company the official hotel of several international NBA events throughout the upcoming season. Financial terms not disclosed, but it gives Marriott Rewards members access to NBA games and events in the international markets. The NBA this preseason will be playing 10 games in foreign markets, including Italy, Brazil, and China. There clearly are no boundaries to limit growth of the league. As the NBA seeks to become the most global professional sports league, international corporate partners are key to this strategy. Look for more categories to emphasize global reach over U.S. coverage. And now on to sports marketing and investing with George Pine, founder and CEO of Bruin Sports Capital. So... We have an honor. You play for the for the Bucks, and they. You, oh no, that's your brother. That's your brother Jim. That's right? right. I'm I'm the only George Pine never to make the NFL. But you did go to Brown, and, and you were the left tackle of Mark Donovan, who was a quarterback who set a lot of the passing records at Brown, and is now the president of the Kansas City Chiefs. So there is sports business in your blood. Look, part of Mark's good looks is thanks to guys like me. I. I don't believe that for a minute, and believe me, the audience doesn't believe that for a minute either. But in all seriousness, you've had an incredible history uh, with IMG and NASCAR and now Bruin Capital of basically taking organizations and moving them to another level because of your vision. If you can, kind of talk about the commonalities of all of the stuff that you've been doing. Well, when you look back on it, you know, and I, I've never been one to look back, but as you look back, I mean, when I went to NASCAR in 1995, it wasn't called NASCAR. It was called Winston Cup Racing. Yeah, the right. logo was red. The, the, the bar logo really wasn't really very prominent at all and uh, it was a great run 95 to 05 we were young we were hungry we had a great product and i used to say we're 
fighting for truth, justice, and the American way. And I had a blast at NASCAR. The France family was great. And then at IMG again, when you go back and look what IMG was in 2006 and what it was in 2013, very different company. And uh, I was a part of that, and, uh, and we had a nice run. Truth, justice, American way with NASCAR and 4.5 billion annually in television rights, that doesn't hurt either. Yeah, well, we came from, from not much to, to a lot. I think when we went there, the TV rights uh, were less than $100 million a year. When I left, they were $565 million a year. So we, that, was a, that was good progress. I, I know it's unique to NASCAR, but, but is there a textbook answer on how you morph a brand that is a southeast-oriented racing in the backwoods and make it an international brand. How do you do it? Well, it's a couple things. One, better distribution of the product, right? Taking it outside the southeast uh, to other parts of the country. Two, uh, better distribution of the TV product. But people forget, in 1995, 16 of our races were on the Nashville network. And then three, pretty thoughtful marketing. I mean, we were aggressive salespeople, but we were very thoughtful. So we measured uh, the growth of the hardcore fan and the growth of the casual fan. And you never wanted to grow, uh, not grow your hardcore fan. And then understanding what you're good at, which is people like, people who are straight up genuine, people you admire, sense of family, sense of belonging. That resonates in New Hampshire, that resonates in California and Washington, as well as it does in Tennessee and North Carolina. NASCAR's biggest asset, fan avidity, fan loyalty, you mentioned it as well. It resonates with sponsors and television. But how does NASCAR get to the next level as well? Well, they've got to keep, keep going on that tried and true formula. I mean, having a great product, continue to refine your product. And, and reinvent yourself and continue to hammer home a message that's attractive to your hardcore fan. All right, speaking of reinventing yourself, it's a pretty good segue. How do you end up at IMG? How do I end up at IMG? <laughs> I had a friend of mine who said, you need to go meet this guy, Ted Forsman. Really didn't know who Ted was. And uh, he had just bought IMG in 04, and it was the end of 05. And I went for what I thought would be a 30-minute meeting and ended up two hours. And Ted was one heck of a salesman himself and pretty uh, persuasive. And so... Uh, and 30 or 45 days after that, you know, he convinced me that IMG would be a great opportunity, which it was. Um, great company, uh, 30 countries, uh, 3,500 employees, uh, broad lines of sports. And I thought two things. One, I thought working for Ted Forsman would make me better. And really, uh, anytime you get a job or have an opportunity, you really want to get, get better. And I thought uh, learning from Ted day in and day out on how to invest, how to analyze things, how to look at things, how to size things up, was great experience for me, which it was. And then second, I think IMG uh, being broad lines of business, 30 countries was certainly a, a new challenge for me. So the combination of the two was, was compelling. So NASCAR, you're reinventing the brand or expanding it. Uh, some would say IMG, not contracting, but, but making it more of a commercially viable entity. Some would say so it gets spin off, spun off and sold. How are those two? Well, it's a different, different experience, yeah, right? right? So I show up at NASCAR. I think the marketing department had four people, and we built it from the ground up, right? And so whether it was licensing, sponsorship, media, public relations, whatever it might have been, we built it from the ground up. IMG was very different, right? You come in at the, as a president of sports and entertainment. You're overseeing a large business, and you're having to restructure from the top down. And that, those are two very different experiences, which I think really benefited me in a, in, in a great way. Founded, running uh, a new entity. Uh, what is Bruin Capital, and what are you going to spend the $250 million you've raised for? Carefully. But uh, <laughs> Bruin, you know, Bruin Capital for me is, first of all, I'm 49 years old, about to become 50. And, and 
who do you want to spend the next 10 years with? And so what we're trying to do is build, a, build great companies. And we've gone out and we've raised uh, $250 million in equity from wealthy families. One point of difference is that we're not a fund. We're an operating company. And, and our, our, we've designed this to be a lasting and long-term endeavor. It doesn't mean we wouldn't evaluate other opportunities, but this has been designed for long-term, flexible, and nimble capital. Second of all, hypothetically, uh, we know what we're doing. You know, we're not investors, we're operators, so we're going to look to invest in companies where we think we can make a difference. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to embrace and support and help great CEOs, but we want to buy businesses that we think are under, underdeveloped and that we can grow. And then the third part of the stool here is WPP. You know, they're the largest advertiser in the, they buy the most advertising in the world on behalf of their clients, $100 billion, 42% of the ads in the world. And having them on as a global partner is terrific for us. And then Martin Sorrell's involvement, he's a builder and creator of businesses. So I think when you put all that together, it's a compelling proposition. The compelling part of it as well from an equity standpoint is uh, you're, not, you're not a REIT and it's not a blind trust, but yet families are making a decision to invest with you without knowledge of the specific properties that you're dealing with, but they're basically making investment decisions because of the personnel involved in running this company? Correct, correct. really on yeah. a 25-year track record based on that, trying to find underdeveloped uh, assets. You know, when you look back in 1995, like I said, it was Winston Cup racing, races on the national network, predominantly in the southeast, looked quite different in 2005. IMG looked quite different. You know, IMG wasn't in college sports as an example when we, we came yeah. to IMG. So the ability to grow real value and, and grow real earnings is uh, why we started uh, Bruin Sports Capital. How do you feel about people uh, throwing $250 million at you without knowing what you're going to do with it? I feel very good about it. I mean, I'm very, uh, you know, I'm excited. I'm reinvented. Uh, I love getting up to go to work every day, and I'm, I'm driven. So I take it as a, a really an awesome responsibility that somebody has the faith in me, and I take it very serious, and I'm, I'm really humbled by it all. Get that key man up. You got the key man paid? <laughs> <laughs> Laps and no response. So let's talk about the international media world that you could play in trillion dollars, even more, the business. It's not domestic anymore. It's domestic and global. What's the overall takeaway trend about the international media business? Well, I just think that media is changing, right? Mm -hmm. And so the channels of distribution are changing. And whenever the channels of distribution change, there are going to be new opportunities. And there will be winners and losers. And so trying to understand that and take advantage of those opportunities is, is an exciting time to be doing what we're doing. And the other thing that's great is that sports, no matter what happens, is going to continue to be very valuable. I, I would say more valuable going forward for two reasons. One, it aggregates big audiences. Two, the passion behind sports is, is unique. How about three, which is, we've talked about in the panels, uh, ironically, reality television created the name, but you could TiVo Survivor. You're not going to be able to TiVo the Stanley Cup championship and know in a cave for three weeks that you can't find out the result, that's got to add value to television. Well, it's it's must-see TV, and also the change in distribution actually lets people experience sports in a deeper, more relevant way. You're able to ch uh, share statistics and videos with your best friends, and so I actually think digital 
enhances the tide the consumer has, and that consumer has a very high passion. And again, as you point out, sports is must-see TV. So it's battle for the second screen, but it's not really a second screen anymore. What does a TV look like 10 years from now? My daughters, they see this thing on the wall, and they don't understand what it is. It's a, oh, that's the thing we look on a laptop or a mobile device. Do we care about what is a television anymore, or is it media broadly based? Well, that's the, that's the question. I mean, yeah. certainly I have four young children, 11 to 18, I guess not so young, and you can set, see that the way they consume news and information is quite different than the way yeah. we did. And so that change is definitely coming. I don't know what the screen looks like, but it's going to be different. There's absolutely no question about it. Are we ahead of where we need to be from a business perspective or where we need to be as far as rights fees, lawyers, allocations, equity, economics? How do we structure the brave new world where the TV rights are there, but the collateral rights and the digital rights and all, do they catch up and have we caught up? Well, I think, you know, we got very sophisticated people negotiating these deals. And an example of Time Warner, obviously they made a $24 billion commitment yeah. to the National Basketball Association. You know, you have sophisticated people thinking through those uh, items very carefully, but it is gonna change. And there are gonna be winners and there are gonna be losers and it's gonna be fun to watch. How do you position yourself uh, on top of all this or ahead of uh, ahead of all this? I always try to, there's a saying that Wayne Gretzky used, you know, I want to go to where the puck's going to be, not where the puck is. And when I look back at what I've done right, and I've done a lot wrong, by the way, but what I did right was I thought in 1995 NASCAR had a lot of growth. I thought in 2006 IMG had a lot of growth. And I thought college sports within IMG had a lot of growth. So I think that what's important for me, or what, what's worked for me, is understanding underdeveloped assets and then and, and trying to be involved with them. Um, What's the next big puck you're chasing? Well, I can't. If I, if I, <laughs> yeah, you'd have to shoot me. To I'd have to knock me off the chair if I, if I told hint. you that. Give no, me something we're just general. Looking, we're very. It's very broad, and uh, and so what's unique about us is we're not a one-trick pony, and so we're really looking at things where we think we can create value. The bottom line is, in the future, ten years from now, give us kind of the broad perspective on what the entire business looks like, if you can. I, I, it'll be a global business. It'll be vert a vertical business. We'll be working with federations. We'll be providing services for clients, and you know, I expect this to be very successful. Do you resent the fact that your brother played in the NFL and you didn't sniff it? I did. He was a lot better than me, except I taught him everything he knew, so that was good. Well, well put. Thank you. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show is Alex Cohen. Audio producer, Adam Wieson. Technical assistance provided by Jamie Weber, Tanner Simpkins, and Carlos Waddick. The executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.